good to see you this morning. Would you Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. I was glad to see the pulpit remain the same size between last week and this week, uh, regardless of Ben's suggestion. A couple weeks ago, uh, we looked at the conversion of a man named Saul. Uh, Saul is also Paul, who wrote a third of our New Testament. Uh, Before he was a Christian, though, Judaism had formed uh, and shaped Saul's outlook on the world. Uh, It shaped his worldview. It shaped his, his values and his heart commitments uh, it shaped the way that he related to God. It even shaped the way he, he read the Bible. In, 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 Paul's reading, in Saul's reading of the Bible, before he was a Christian, there's no way Jesus is Lord. There's no way Jesus was, was Savior. But Christians were teaching Jesus is, in fact, Lord, and that he is, in fact, Savior. Christians were, were undermining all that Saul had built his life upon And so Saul hated the church. He breathed to destroy the church. He breathed to stop this gospel from from spreading. Jesus had other plans for Saul, though. Don't forget that the book of Acts is about the acts of the risen Lord Jesus. Uh, The exalted Jesus, he appears to Saul. He gives Saul a glimpse of his glory And it changes Saul forever. Jesus transforms Saul's heart. He transforms Saul's worldview. Jesus is now the center. Jesus is now what the scriptures are about. Jesus is why Paul lives. Today we're going to see just how transformed Saul really was. The persecutor who tried to stop the gospel, becomes the persecuted for spreading the gospel. Let's look at this, starting in verse 19. It says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who, were amazed, and all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they didn't believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them, How on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. 
And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus to the church throughout all so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let's pray again. Father, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. We can do nothing to bring you honor and glory with our lives apart from you, Lord. So come, and through your word and your spirit, uh, help us to abide and help Christ to abide in us. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we approach Acts 9 again this morning, we are encountering a divine reversal uh, in the life of Saul. If you recall, chapter 8 began with Saul persecuting the church in Jerusalem, and then in chapter 9, right at the beginning, uh, we saw Saul uh, going to persecute the church in Damascus. Uh, Now, we're seeing... Saul being the persecuted one in Damascus, and then we also just read he's going to be the one uh, who's being persecuted in in Jerusalem. So there's been a shift, a reversal in Saul's life, and the one who makes all the difference between those two occasions is is Jesus Christ in uh, Saul's life. He, He causes the divine reversal. Jesus transforms this murderer into a missionary. Luke tells this reversal because Saul will become a major player in, uh, in the narrative of Acts. Um, very soon Luke will shift to the mission uh, to the Gentiles. And uh, what we've seen already is the gospel advancing in Jerusalem. We've seen the gospel advancing in Judea and Samaria. Very soon we will see the gospel advancing to the end of the earth, to the Gentiles. And Luke will spend 16 chapters developing this mission to the Gentiles. The primary missionary that Luke follows in those 16 chapters is Saul. And so we're getting introduced to Saul here. God causes a divine reversal in Saul's life to bring about a divine reversal among others in the nations. To turn many from darkness to light, to rescue many from the the power of Satan and bring them into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And I just, at the outset, just want to ask you this. Has God caused a divine reversal in your life? Um, Has he brought you from darkness to light? Has God converted you? Um, and, And if he has, then how might he use you to bring about a divine reversal among your neighbors and the nations. We can't change anybody on our own. That's, that's God's work ultimately. But, but God uses us in, in the process. We pray. We deliver his, his message that, that transforms people. So how might he use you to work a divine reversal among your neighbors and among the nations? I want you to be thinking about this as we continue uh, looking at 
at this divine reversal in Saul's life and how it, how it impacted others. So our passage begins with Saul's ministry in Damascus, and then it, it's going to proceed to Saul's ministry in Jerusalem. And in both texts, we're going to see the same three things. Saul is going to partner with the disciples. He is going to proclaim Jesus Christ, and he is going to, be, he's going to endure persecution from enemies. So in Damascus, we first see that Saul partners with the disciples, and we see this in verse 19. It says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. So a key characteristic of Jesus' disciples, we've seen this repeatedly in the book of Acts, is that they are together. They are together. They, they weren't Lone Ranger Christians. They were with one another. Saul is with the disciples here. He's gone from trying to kill Jesus' disciples, not wanting Jesus' disciples, to gathering with Jesus' disciples. Next, we see that Saul proclaims Jesus Christ. Uh, verse 20, it says, And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. Now, some will say that Saul kind of you know, went off by himself to meditate for, for three years and study the scriptures before preaching. And they get this from Galatians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. But the point there isn't that Saul went off and studied by himself for three years, but that he simply didn't consult with the Jerusalem church until three years after he was converted. So during that three years, verse 20 says, he was preaching Christ. Immediately, he started preaching Christ. In particular, he was preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay? Now, other religions who claim the Bible as their holy book, too, or one of their holy books, have different understandings of what that means to be, for Jesus to be the Son of God. So we need to be clear. We get a clue in verse 22 where it says that Saul was proving that Jesus was the Christ, uh, the Messiah, God's anointed king. We get another clue in Saul's own preaching later in Acts chapter 13, verse, verse 33, uh, where he cites Psalm 2, referring to Jesus, and, and the passage uh, uh, there is talking about Yahweh, saying to Jesus, uh, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And uh, basically, uh, if, we, if, we, if you thumb through and look at the way even Paul uses this phrase, Son of God, in his letters, basically, for Jesus to be the Son of God means at least two things. Okay? One, he was the promised anointed king in David's family line. He's the promised anointed king in David's family line. The prophets and the Psalms, they expect a future king in David's line. But there's something unique about this this uh, king in David's line, uh, and we get it in 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, that this future king would relate to God as a son relates to a father. Okay? So that's one element here. The other, so two, there, there were also expectations that the future king in David's line uh, would, would be much, much greater than David himself ever was. 
So Zechariah 9, his kingdom would spread from sea to sea. Uh, Isaiah 9, his rule would last forever. Uh, Psalm 110, he would share Yahweh's throne. Psalm 45, verse 6, even identifies him as God. At least if you read Psalm 45 the way Hebrews 1 does. So to proclaim Jesus as Son of God is to proclaim Jesus as both the ultimate king in David's line and God in his own right. He is Son, but also God in his own right. And that message doesn't sit right with people who just hung this man on a cross. Okay? How can Jesus be true king and God over all if he died with such disgrace? It doesn't make sense to the natural mind. The people are even amazed in in verse 21 and 22 that that Saul starts preaching such a message. This this foolishness. But they can't stop him. He, He kept increasing, it says, in strength and confounding the Jews And this leads to Saul's persecution by enemies. Verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So this one who who came into Damascus with all of his pride and and, and persecution, now gets uh, forced out of the city by persecutors uh, in a fish basket. He leaves Damascus in weakness. And uh, you can look this up later, but if you read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 30 and 32, Saul actually brings this, this point up. This situation where he's lowered down the wall in a basket. And he, and he uses it as an example to boast in his weakness. Okay? It became another way of saying, hey, I'd rather be in a fish basket with Jesus, weak, than pretending to be strong without Jesus. His whole mindset has shifted. The way down for Saul is actually the way up because it identifies him with with Jesus. I might add here also just a very practical observation. Um, It's not always the case that Christians stay to endure persecution in, in the book of Acts. Okay, there are places in Acts when Christians can't escape persecution. Uh, They're in prison or they're surrounded by enemies, something like that. There are also examples when Christians choose to stay to endure persecution. And and you will see this in Paul's own uh, missionary travels. Yet there are other occasions when they deem it best for the gospel's sake to leave a region. Okay? And and we should be... So so we, we should keep this in mind. We have several missionary families that are on the field right now. One was just forced to leave their country, we, we should be careful not to, to heap guilt upon them for leaving. I'm not saying you were doing that, but sometimes that's the case. Uh, people will heap guilt unnecessarily on uh, those who have gone out if they have to leave places 
Um, so there's, there's no need to heap guilt. We need to realize that you know if they've prayed and they've received input from the church and wise counselors, if they choose to leave a region, they're free to do so in Christ so that it better serves the gospel advance somewhere else. So that happens. And that actually ends up happening here. You see, persecution doesn't actually stop the gospel. It simply relocates people to spread the gospel elsewhere. And that happens next with Saul's ministry in Jerusalem. So again, and again, we're going to encounter the same pattern that we saw in Damascus. So first, Saul partners with the disciples. It's going to take more work this time because he, he doesn't have the level of trust built in the Jerusalem church. He's been away for three years. He's coming back. There's been no face-to-face with this guy. No Facebook posts and everybody in Jerusalem liking what Paul's doing in Damascus. So no trust. And look what happens in verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. For they didn't believe that he was his disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So the church is still fearful, but good old Barnabas, we've met him in chapter 4. He's the son of encouragement. He reassures the disciples that Saul is legit and that's enough for the, the walls to to come down. Right? Verse 28 says that Saul went in, out, went in and out among them. So he, he's one of them, the idea is. He's family now. He has freedom in their fellowship. So he partners with the disciples to advance the gospel. Then he proclaims Jesus Christ. Uh, again, verse 28. He went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Verse 29 says that some of this involves speaking and disputing with, with the Hellenists. Okay? Jesus Christ had just dismantled Saul's worldview and replaced it with a worldview that has Jesus at the center. Saul is now dismantling their worldview and arguing that Jesus must be at its Center And surprisingly enough, this is exactly what Stephen was doing uh, back in, in chapter 6. Uh, it's also what led Saul to take part in stoning Stephen. But now Saul has aligned himself with Stephen. Uh, can you imagine the kind of stir this would create in Jerusalem? They, they watched, these people watched Saul oversee Stephen's martyrdom. They laid their garments at Saul's feet while they were stoning Stephen. But now Saul is back preaching Stephen's message. And they don't like this. This is way too compelling to have such an enemy of the gospel won over by the gospel. And so it goes on to say that Saul is persecuted again by, by enemies. Verse 29. But they were seeking to kill him, and when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So a little life lesson here. Expect old friends to hate you because of your solidarity with Jesus. Expect old friends to hate you 
because of your solidarity with Jesus. It may not be a violent hatred necessarily like Saul's was, but as long as they love the world over Christ and you love Christ over the world, you can expect them to hate the new you. Jesus told us it would be this way. So we've seen the same pattern in Damascus and now in Jerusalem. Saul partners with the disciples. Saul proclaims Jesus Christ and Saul is persecuted by by enemies. What's the point? The point is to stress Saul's solidarity with Jesus. Saul's solidarity with, with Jesus Christ. This man is truly born again. This man has been changed by Jesus. Everything about him has changed. And I think we need to see something here. When a person is truly united to Jesus, that person will change like this. That person will partner with the church. That person will proclaim Jesus Christ. That person will be willing to risk persecution to get the gospel into the lives of others. So I want to return to the question I posed at the beginning. I asked you to consider you know, whether God has caused a divine reversal in your own life. Has the Lord transformed your heart and, and, your, and your entire mindset and your purpose? Can, can you say that you've encountered Christ in a way that's it's turned your world upside down? You're, you're on a different trajectory towards the kingdom than, than you were on before. Now, if you profess to be a Christian, but there's been no real change, Jesus hasn't impacted your way of living all that much, you you still have the same mindset, the same values, the same purposes that you had without him, then you need to consider seriously whether you are a Christian. And maybe you don't identify with that at all. You just know that Jesus hasn't impacted life. You know you're not a Christian. You I want to say to both people that there is still hope for you. That there is still hope. Because what we observe in the transformation of Saul is that Jesus transforms the worst of sinners. Okay? Jesus can turn murderers into missionaries. He can change you. He can transform you. His death on the cross is really that powerful to free you from your bondage to sin and to the world. His resurrection life is that glorious to make you a new person, to help you walk in newness of life. His Holy Spirit is is going to be there to sanctify you daily uh, so that you more and more become like Jesus. So don't hesitate to trust in Him today. And and if you're a Christian and you're like, yeah, I was like that and now I'm not, look to Jesus again. He, He can transform you. Give your life. Make your solidarity with him public. But if you're among those where Christ has brought about a divine reversal in your life, you you can see change. Over time, you've you've become a new person. Then, Then how might the Lord use you to bring about a divine reversal among your neighbors and the nations? Again, we can't change people. That's ultimately God's work of grace. But he uses us. He uses us to deliver the message that changes people, which is the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. What does that look like for you in relation to partnering with Jesus' church, proclaiming Jesus' message, and enduring persecution with Jesus? Should that come? Being a Christian, what we're seeing here and throughout the book of Acts, is not a private matter. This is not just, well, that's just between me and God. That's not New Testament Christianity. Rather, a person's solidarity with Jesus gives way to public identification with Jesus in the people we partner with and in the message we announce and in the persecution we may face. And, and someone could look at this and say, yeah, but, I mean, isn't Saul a special case? I mean, he's like the super Christian. He's an apostle. Is it right to say that such public solidarity with Christ should be true of all Christians? Yes, Saul becomes an apostle. Yes, he is unique in that sense. Yes, he has a unique encounter with Jesus. Yes, not everything that Saul experiences is going to be the experience of every Christian. But Saul later will write several letters to the churches, and in several, in many of those letters, Saul has this command imitate me as I imitate Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Once he's in Christ, there are things about Saul's life we should imitate. And all three of these appear elsewhere in, in his letters. We partner with Jesus' people. We proclaim Jesus' message. We endure persecution in the path of love. Okay, so just ask yourself this morning, you know, what does your partnership with the church look like? This church, with, with each other, what does this partnership look like? Does it exist? Is it, is it vibrant? Are you investing in relationships that, that strengthen one another? Are you, are you making every effort to, to be with one another? Sometimes we, we've lived our lives so long doing other things... And building into our schedules, maybe even lots of good things, but things that pull us away from each other throughout the week. And yet, again and again in the book of Acts, we're seeing that people are with one another and they're ministering with one another. So is there a sense of partnership to advance the gospel? And if not, you know, what are we doing to cultivate that? How are we showing hospitality and what do our care group meetings look like? And are we being faithful to those? What are, are we meeting needs? Or are we serving and, and caring for one another? Are we proclaiming Jesus' message to others? It's another question I think we can ask in imitating Paul's, Paul's life. People who follow Jesus tell others about Jesus. That's basic discipleship. So what are the names of three lost people that you know that you can be praying for and that you can be looking for opportunities to, to share Christ with them? Uh, another question, are you running away from persecution when you know that's what it might take to advance the gospel? I was at a missions conference on Monday and Tuesday this week and... Uh, you know, we looked at passage after passage after passage in the, in the New Testament uh, on how getting the gospel to the nations isn't easy, comfortable, 
or convenient. It's hard. It requires endurance and patient labors and, and years of investment, sometimes not seeing much results in the meantime. It requires lots of death to self. In the American mindset, the supreme values are safety, comfort, and convenience. That's why we have iPhones and microwaves and whatever else. They they eventually build into us a, a, a mindset that safety, comfort, and convenience are supreme. Solidarity with Christ calls us to a different set of values. doesn't mean you have to chunk the iPhone in the microwave. But it calls us to a different set of values to make sure those things are not ruling us. If we look at our Savior's cross, love is not safe. Love is not comfortable. And love is not convenient. I liked what Ben said last week. Our vision has been blurry far too long. It's time to put on the lenses of the kingdom where the first is last and the last is first. That takes death. So how's that going to happen? I mean, how's this kind of life of regular partnership and regular proclamation of Jesus and maybe even facing persecution as we as we do so together. I mean, how's that kind of life possible? How is it sustainable? And where does where does our help come from in it? And I think the answer comes in verse 31. Luke is giving us another snapshot of the church's growth. Jesus' plan is, is right on track. Saul's conversion and his solidarity with Christ alongside them brings a great sense of peace. Verse 31 says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. I want you to notice first the passive verb here. The church was being built up. This is what you call a divine passive If you supplied the subject, it goes like this. The Lord was building up the church. Okay, Peter uses the same wording to speak of God, building up the church as a spiritual house, uh, each member being a living stone. So part of the answer to how we partner and how we preach and how we endure persecution is this. The Lord will build you up to do it. The Lord does it in you. He he builds you up this way. He strengthens you. He gives you the grace you need to, to, to live this way. Another part of the how is this. Uh, he mentions these, these, these two things, and they're, they seem opposite, but they're kind of the same sides, side, uh, two sides of the same coin, that walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So peace in this, this building up of the church, it comes by walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And this is really significant. We don't have time to look at all the passages, but in the Old Testament, the, 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 the prophets and the Psalms 
uh, speak of a day that there would be a coming Messiah and he would reign. And in that day, his people would experience three things. They would experience peace. They would experience the fear of the Lord being put into their hearts. And they would experience comfort. You can think of Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, right? For this coming day of the Messiah's reign. And we're finding all three of those things in the church here, okay? In other words, God is fulfilling those promises. So each one of these is peace and this this fear of God in their hearts and this comfort that they're experiencing. Each one is a sign. It's a little window through which when when you look through it, what you're seeing is the Messiah is reigning. The Messiah has sat on his throne. The Messiah has brought life for his people. The Messiah is ushering in his kingdom. And so the point here is we can partner and preach and endure persecution because Messiah reigns, because Jesus reigns and gives peace, fear, and comfort to his people. You see, when when we fear everything else but the Lord, we don't have peace. We don't have peace. We don't have peace when we fear man. We're scared of what somebody's going to say about us or do to us. We're, We're worried about not being accepted. We're frantically trying to please everybody. We avoid people who aren't like us. We run away from, from neighborhoods that, that might hurt us. We, we hide behind our iPhones in waiting rooms and don't talk to people on elevators and whatnot. There's no peace. You, you don't have peace when you fear circumstances either. You're, you're like the guy in Proverbs, you know, who sits in his house all day and does nothing because, hey, there might be a lion in the street. It's going to get me. You don't have peace when you fear death. The fear of death is actually one of the devil's weapons. Hebrews 2 talks about this. And he uses it to make us afraid and to keep us enslaved and so that we, we don't love and we don't speak and we don't move into that neighborhood and we don't go to that country and we fear people coming into this one. You don't have peace when you, when you fear the loss of your possessions and the loss of your 401k and the, the loss of your freedoms. But when we fear the Lord above all of these, it brings peace. I'm not saying we should deny these other fears. They're real. God gave us emotions and we feel afraid. They're really there. We don't deny them. Rather, the fears we do face are then given their proper perspective before a grand vision of God's sovereignty and God's authority and God's judgment and God's mission to save the world. And so part of fearing the Lord, for example, is trusting that His word is good above all other words. And so, you know, maybe you're dealing with something like fear of man, and and in those moments, fear of God looks like believing His word that if if God is for me in Christ, who can be against me? Who, who can be against me if God is for me? Uh, if it's fear of death, we talked about Hebrews 2 a minute ago. His word says that Jesus died to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. If it's fear of losing possessions, you trust that Christ, Jesus, and all that his kingdom that is entailed in, in fellowship with him and in, and in his kingdom is a way better possession and an abiding one. We see that in Hebrews 10 with the church. If it's fear of meeting people's needs, right? You go into neighborhoods and you, you encounter people and you're not like them and they have needs that you've never encountered in your life before and you don't know what to do and I don't have the funds and I don't have this and I don't have the knowledge and I've never experienced that and I don't know how to talk to these people. We trust the Lord's word that if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You see, we can love and we can make sacrifices because we have a generous Father who can meet every need. So this is how fearing the Lord's word, walking in the fear of the the Lord, is what it looks like on a day-to-day basis. And, And you know what? God puts this kind of fear in our hearts. This is Jeremiah 32, verse 40. That he would put the fear of him in the hearts of his people so that they would not turn away from him. He'd give them a new heart. He would put the fear of him in their hearts so that they would not turn away from him. So it's all grace, and we get it through faith in Jesus Christ. He will enable us to partner and preach and endure persecution to see people saved by putting the fear of him in our hearts. We can also partner, preach, and endure persecution because the Holy Spirit comforts us. The Holy Spirit comforts us. Verse 31 says, uh, The church was walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the Spirit comforts His people through uh, other Christians uh, ministering to one another. Second uh, Corinthians 7, for example, you, you see Titus and he comes and he brings a report of the church to Saul and Saul uh, says that he is comforted by Titus's coming. Sometimes the Spirit comforts his people through the words of Scripture. We get this in Romans 15.4. It's through the encouragement of the scriptures or the the comfort. Same word there. At other times, though, the Spirit himself comforts his people through supernatural intervention. God blesses the church with a concrete manifestation of his grace that makes them confident in Jesus' reign and confident in Jesus' presence and confident in Jesus' coming kingdom. I'll give you an example of that in just just a moment. Any one of these, maybe even all, uh, could be present in verse 31. The point being that that our God doesn't leave us alone in the mission. He doesn't leave us alone as a church in partnering with one another. He doesn't leave us alone in proclaiming Jesus Christ to our neighbors and the nations. And he doesn't leave us alone in the midst of persecution. He's he's with us to comfort us, to give us courage to keep acting on his revelation in Christ. That's how the Spirit does it. He takes the the objective truth and the objective reality of God's work in Jesus and he so presses it into our heart and 
changes our mind with it, that it, that it comforts our emotions, and it, it encourages our will to act and to do. So comfort is this, is this good gift from the Lord. You know, when you experience comfort in life, various forms of comfort, each of those are just a taste of the kinds of comfort that ought to come through the Holy Spirit as, we, as we're leaning upon Him and, and trusting Him. The problem sometimes is that we pursue comfort in the wrong things. So instead of finding comfort in the Spirit when hardships come, uh, sometimes we turn to worldly comforts and, and quick fixes. And sometimes the Lord strips those worldly comforts away from us, doesn't he? So that in the end we can say with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but you, O Lord? And on earth there is nothing I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but you are my strength and portion forever. I told you I'd mention Saul himself being comforted. Um, I'll give you an example of that. But in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1... Saul uh, speaks of, of being so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Okay, this, Paul is, is at the end. But he goes on to say that all of that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. And this is right after 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, talk about Saul, or Paul, experiencing the comfort that comes from the Father of all mercies and God of all comfort, who has comforted us in our affliction. So, so this is, and this is then the example of how Paul himself is being comforted. So that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And so this, this objective reality of Jesus' resurrection and the fact that Jesus was going to raise Paul from the dead, even when he is despairing of life itself, it becomes his comfort from God in his afflictions. And so I, I want to ask us, you know, what's your go-to source for comfort? Where does your soul find rest when, when you're anxious? Uh, what, what do you turn to as your ultimate comforter? And is it the Lord and is it the Lord's word to us. Jesus gave the Spirit to comfort and encourage us in His mission. When the church walks in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it experiences peace. It's, it's built up as we partner, preach, and endure persecution. It also says it multiplies that, that's the observation he makes at the end of verse 31. It multiplied. It's a great desire to want to, to multiply as a, as a church. That's a pattern you actually see in the book of Acts, is the church multiplying. God adding to their number. We should want God to save more people to enjoy His grace and, and spread His glory. But the place to begin isn't with, well, we need to multiply. That's not the place to begin. The place to begin is praying that the Lord would help us to fear Him. 
and that the Lord would help us to find comfort in the Holy Spirit. It's, it's walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. Multiplication is, is God's doing, God's business. We walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We, we should pray for that to, to happen in our church. And when that's true, when we're finding our courage and our rest in Christ and we're, and we're walking in the fear of the Lord, we will partner and we will preach and we will endure persecution well as a church. The Lord will do it in us. When that's true, we'll spend ourselves to see others in our community saved and glorifying Jesus. And then, may the Lord be pleased to add to our number those who are being saved.